All right. This has been great today. Love it. Uh, I love it. I want to ask you, as I start this sermon, I want to ask you a question. Is it a sin to be rich? No. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay, good answer. No. But what you do with your wealth can be righteous or sinful. And how you handle your money will impact you now and in eternity. Now, we're going to examine that today as we continue our series on James. We're going verse by verse through James called Wisdom for Everyday Life. And today we're in James 5, 1 through 6. I'm preaching a message entitled Wisdom About Riches. And I tell you, this passage, James 5, 1 through 6, you will see as we read through this. This is not a fun passage. This is not an easy passage. This is not a passage I would choose to preach on on my own. That's one of the great things about preaching through a book. You can't just skip over stuff. Well, you could, but that would be cheating, and I don't cheat. So I'm going to touch every word and every verse of, of these, uh, of these uh, five chapters of James. About. Now, before I read this, I want to address this. Many of you immediately think this Message will not apply to me because I am not rich. That's because you're comparing yourself to Bill Gates and Elon Musk. But the average American is rich when compared to the whole world. We just compare ourselves with the ultra-rich Americans. But if you don't believe this, uh, go to this website. It's called howrichami.com. And type in your income. You type in your income, how many adults in your family, how many children. Now, I, the, the numbers I'm giving you are just based on one individual. An individual, that's called per capita income. It's the numbers I'm going to give you. And I didn't have time to do a slide on all these numbers I, I give you, but I, I did a couple. For example, hit the next one. If you make $2,835 a year, you're in the richest 49.9% of the people in the world. If you make $2,800 a year, you're in the top 50%. So I, I, you can tell where this is going, right? If you make $5,000 a year, you're in the top 35% of wage earners on the planet. If you make $10,000 a year, you're in the top 20% of the richest people in the world. If you make $29,000 a year, you're in the top 5% of the richest people in the world. If you make $37, $37, you're in the bottom. If you make $37,000 a year, you're in the top 3% of earners on the planet. If you make $45,000 a year, you're in the top 2% of people in the world, incomes. And if you make, I got a slide on this one, $58,000 a year, you're in the richest 1% of the global population. $58,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of the people, of the richest people in the world, including Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and you, if you make over $58,000 a year. It's pretty mind-boggling. The median per capita income in America is $40,000, $40,500. That puts over half of Americans in the top 2.5% of the richest people in the world. 
So when James is talking about riches today, don't be so, so quick to exclude yourself from his words. I didn't get one amen on that. Some of y'all are, are rich and you don't even know it. I remind you, James does not say anywhere in this passage or in his book that being rich is a sin. He addresses rich, rich people and poor people multiple times in the book. In fact, Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus had some rich followers. Think of Zacchaeus. Think of Joseph of Arimathea who provided his, his tomb. Think of a woman named Joanna who, who followed Jesus, who financially supported his, his ministry. Listen, money is not evil, but the love of money is. And James shows us that the way that we handle our money can be sinful. It, it, sinful. And he gives us four main principles in this passage about wealth that we're going to look at he, as he shows us that worldly wealth is absolutely worthless in eternity. And what James does in this passage, and this is a hard passage, he shows us the horrific consequences of sinfully handling wealth. Listen to James 5.1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. I told you these are going to be some hard verses. These verses are very shocking because when we think of rich people, we think, of happiness and fulfillment and, and all that. But, but James says, whoa, 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 whoa. James says that money can bring misery if you mishandle it. And the verb he uses here for weep is the same word he used in James 4, 9. If you remember the, passage, the scripture, Pastor Deb preached an amazing message on repentance and about weeping and wailing for, in repentance. Well, here it's not about repentance. He's telling rich people to weep and wail aloud because of the certainty of judgment and punishment for the way they mishandled their money. James explains the reason for the rich to weep aloud and to howl, he says in James 5, 2 through 3, your wealth has rotted, moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver have corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Hoarded wealth. James refers to the destruction here of three kinds of wealth. Your wealth is rotted, or, and, and there's a connotation in here that that was stores of food that rotted. Maws have eaten your clothes, your garments, rich, fine apparel, moth-eaten, your silver, silver and gold tarnished, corroded. Each one of them that you thought was so great comes to nothing in their own way. The first principle I want you to see here is that James says that hoarding your wealth for yourself is a sin. He's not saying that having savings is a sin, anything like that. But he's warning rich people who trust in their riches rather than trusting in God that there will be a day of reckoning. You will, listen, we will all stand before God one day. Every single person. 
And we will give an account to God for what we did with our money. And if we've hoarded it all for ourselves, if we spend it all on ourselves, the Bible says that, James says, the money you've hoarded will actually testify against you. This passage is so similar to James's brother, Jesus, who said in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, do not store up treasures, yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We have some close friends that just came to my mind. They got their, 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 their house got broken into this week and, and, and a lot of their stuff was stolen, jewelry, things that were important to them. It's just, it's, it's gone. That's why Jesus here is teaching. Again, the Bible doesn't condemn saving. It tells us to do that. I don't have time to preach on that today. But Jesus is teaching us, and James is, that the safest investment on earth is to invest it in heaven. That investment will never go down, and it always pays off, and it pays off here and in eternity. And God wants you to start storing up treasure in heaven. Jesus said that. How do you do that? By investing your money in things that last forever. It's not clothes. It's not cars. It's not gold and silver. What things last forever? The word of God will last forever, and people will live forever in heaven or hell, depending on where they go. So that means that the ultimate investment is to give to help communicate the word of God and to give to people in need. That's why you should give to the church, the place where people are being fed the word of God. You should support missionaries who are translating the word of God, teaching the word of God, teaching around the world. Listen, everything you have, everything you have will eventually decay, disappear, or be destroyed. Their house, your cars, boats, RVs, clothes, furniture, flooring, iPhones, iPads, iP- they even have iPods anymore. It's probably, it's, no, that shows, shows you how out of it I am. That stuff is obsolete pretty quick, isn't it? It's all going to rust or wear out or fall apart. So I encourage you to begin storing up treasures in heaven by investing in heaven. How, how do you know if you're hoarding wealth on earth? Well, you can pretty much look at how much you spend on yourself, how much you give to God or those people in need. When we give to the Lord, listen, when we give to the Lord, he will bless us on earth. Now listen to me, listen. Some rewards will not be received till we get to heaven. A lot of people, a lot of prosperity type people miss that. Some of that, some of that is you're investing in eternity. But Malachi 3.10 says that when we give tithes and offering, God will open for us the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. The point I want to make is this, that when we, what we send to heaven is what is stored in heaven, and what we send to heaven determines the blessings that are sent back down when God opens the windows of heaven. Do you got anything up there for God to pour out back on you? Some of y'all are waiting for something that's not going to happen because you've not sent tithes and offerings. 
Some of you are thinking, well, God, if you would open up the windows of heaven and bless me, then I would give to you. People get it backwards. <laughs> That's not what it says. It says, if you bring into my storehouse, that's where you get fed, the tithes and offerings, I will open up the windows of heaven and bless you. God's pouring out what he sent on ahead. And listen, one of the biggest mistakes that people make, even Christians, about money is that when they give their tithes and offerings, that money is gone forever. Wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. That is not true. We got to have the biblical understanding that when we give to the Lord, that money is not divested, but is invested. And when you give with the right motivation, that's giving to be a giver, giving to bless, giving because you know it's more blessed to give than to receive, giving out of obedience and out of love for God. When you give for what, with the right motivation, what you give is never lost. Your wealth is never diminished. God takes what you get and he returns it with increase. Money given to the Lord from your earthly account is placed in your heavenly account. Now, some of y'all did not even know you ever had a heavenly account. And some of you have never opened one. But in Philippians 4.17, Paul was thanking people for giving to, the, giving to him. And he said to them, not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. The word credited means, literally means in this, this Greek word to increase and to abound and to overflow. And so the Bible is teaching that as when you give there's an account, got your name, and God will give back, back to you multiplied. Listen, again, Jesus or James are never saying you can't have any material blessings or savings or investments. There's plenty of Bible verses that tell us to save for the future. But James and Jesus are both addressing those who store up everything for themselves and never give to God or anyone else. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present world, and that's many of you based on the stats that I gave you earlier, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. How many people are just hoping, I hope I win the lottery? That's going to solve all my problems. My faith is in that. No. They put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. But you should put your hope in God, who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. Do you get that part? God wants you to enjoy life. God wants to provide you things that give you an, an enjoyable life. He's not against that. But he's saying, do not put your hope in money. Command them, the rich, which is many of us, to do good to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Command them. Now, now, how would you feel like if I, I really did it? I command you in the name of Jesus to give your tithes and offerings. I'm just up here asking you to pray about doing it. And then command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. So they will take hold of the life that is truly life. I asked you earlier during the service, how is your foundation? 
That's talking about the foundation in this life. How's your foundation building going for eternity? It's kind of a heavy message, isn't it? But it's causing us to look at things differently. You can lay up treasure in, in heaven, store up treasure in heaven as a firm foundation for the coming age. Listen, obviously what the Bible is saying is how we handle our money is important. If we put our trust in money rather than God, it will testify against us. If we hoard it all for ourselves rather than being generous givers, it will testify against us. If we use our money or our authority or to oppress other, uh, oppress other people and hold them back, it will testify against us. And on the day of judgment, worthless Worldly possession cannot help the rich, and those very possessions will be used as evidence for a guilty verdict against them. I just had this, I just remember this old story, an old, an old joke, and I don't remember how it goes, but I'll give you the gist of it. This guy, this rich man guy dies, and he somehow manages to, to get, this cannot happen, so this is not true. This is not biblical. This is just an old joke. You got me? Everybody with me? I'm not speaking the word of the Lord in right this moment. <laughs> but this guy managed to sneak gold into heaven. It took him a lot of work and effort, but he snuck it in there. And he gets up there and he gets to the gates and the angel's going to let him in, you know, and he's like, none of this is true, okay, all right? That, but it's kind of funny. Uh, at least I hope it is. And uh, <laughs> the guy, he says, well, what, let, me, let, let me check your bag before you go in. And, it got, and he looks in, and the angel sees all this, all this gold. And the angel says to the man, well, why did you bring this? Well, why, we don't need that here. He said, well, why did you bring this? He said, this, this is gold. And the angel says, I, I know it's gold, but up here, it's pavement. <laughs> it's like you bunch of, bought a bunch of chunks of concrete up here. Why did you? Why'd you bring this? It's worthless here. But we put so much thought, energy, desire, effort into attaining it. And that, those very possessions can be used as evidence against us. And James gives us more clarity about that in James 5.4. Listen, hear the cries of the workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The wages you have held back cry out against you. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of, of, of heaven's armies. Secondly, James says that gaining riches by oppressing others, cheating others, defrauding others is sin. One way that rich people oppress the poor is by failing to pay them what they're due. We're failing to pay them in a timely manner. A manner that, there's a law in Deuteronomy 24, 14 says, do not oppress a hired servant who's poor and needy, whether he's a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset because he's poor and he's counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry out to the Lord against you and you'll be guilty of sin. Remember that part, cry out to the Lord against you. Listen, we have very few day laborers today, but there are some. But back then, a lot of people worked for money that they got paid. They expected to get paid for that day. And the Bible is saying that people should be paid the amount they should be paid when, when it is due. Anything else is sin. 
And the part about the cries of those who've been defrauded reaching the, the ears of the Lord reminds me of the verses about Abel's blood crying out to God for justice. James says the cries of the, the oppressed reach the ears of the Lord God Almighty. It's literally the Lord of Sabaoth, not the Lord of the Sabbath, but the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the master commander-in-chief over all the armies of heaven. God, the, the leader of the armies of heaven, hears those cries. And so he's giving, James is giving those who are oppressing and cheating others a sober warning. The commander-in-chief, his ears are always open to the ears of the poor, open to the cries of the poor and the oppressed, and his judgment will be on those who oppress them. The word oppressed means it keeps someone in servitude and hardship, especially by unjust exercise of authority. To treat someone who's less powerful in an unfair or cruel way. To, to crush or, or burden someone by the misuse of power or authority. The word comes from Latin. The word oppressed comes from Latin. It literally means to press down. The goal of oppression is to keep certain people weighed down, pressed down by the unjust use of authority or power. Uh, uh, oppression happens when governments overburden their people with taxes or, or, or laws that oppress them, when a company does not allow certain people, women or women of color, to advance, when a husband keeps his wife and children beat down with his words or his, his accent. Oppression happens anytime someone in authority abuses the, that authority. The most egregious example of this would be slavery, which occurred in the history of our nation, and by the way, in the, in the history of virtually every nation of this planet. Oppressed people have no power, and the people in power are usually the people with money. And James goes on to say that Instead of paying people what they're due, oppressors spend the money on themselves. He goes on in James 5, 5. You have lived on earth after oppressing these people and cheating these poor people out of the little bit of wages that they should be getting. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. I'm reading New Testament scripture here. James says a self-indulgent lifestyle is a sin. He's not condemning people for being rich. He's addressing those who have a luxurious and self-indulgent lifestyle at the expense of the poor and everyone else. They don't care about anybody else but themselves. They don't care about people in need. Everything is for themselves. And he's giving them a warning that their luxurious lifestyle here on earth is storing up something for them in eternity. It's storing up misery for them in eternity. Listen, you need to understand that there's a lot of people who are poor on this planet that are going to be rich in eternity. And a lot of people who were rich on earth are going to be poor in regard to them. Everybody's not getting the same thing in heaven. There's levels of rewards and blessing. And people who live in luxury and self-indulgence who never help others, the Bible says here, are fattening themselves up like an animal is fattened up for a day of slaughter. And is speaking of the time of judgment, which James says in other places is coming very soon. James says that the rich are like calves and sheep continuing to feed themselves, getting fatter and fatter every day, hoarding everything for themselves, not blessing anybody else, and one day their end will come. He said it's coming soon. And then fourthly, James says that using wealth to condemn or hurt others is a sin. Listen to James 5, 6. 
You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. The word condemn here is a judicial term. It's talking about rich people who abuse the legal system for their own gain. Not only do they accumulate wealth to themselves through illegal means, but they exploit the, exploit the poor to the point of condemning them by perverting the legal process. What does James mean when he says you've killed the innocent? It, first, it means you've, you've withheld. He, the context is you've withheld people's pay. You've cheated them on their pay. You've deprived them of the ability to feed themselves and feed their family, and that could result in their death. It also means that the courts can deprive people of their livelihood by confiscating their farms or other means of support. Uh, and James says they even use money to manipulate the verdicts of, in the courts. It reminds me of what James said all the way back in chapter 2, verse 6. Do not the rich oppress the poor and drag them into the courts? James saying, saying, is saying that rich people can drag and oppress, can oppress the poor unjustly by exploiting them, dragging them into court, pervert the justice system, and falsely accuse them and condemn even, condemn even helpless, innocent people to death. Listen, History is full of accounts of evil people who oppress millions of innocent victims, who enslave them, who force them to work for no wages, who falsely condemn them and kill them. It certainly happened in the time of slavery. And it happened a long time after that. I read a, few, a book a few years ago, an incredibly eye-opening book called Slavery by Another Name. The Reenslavement of Black Americans from civil, the Civil War to World War II. By, I think his name is, is David or Daniel Blackman. Great book. I encourage you to read it. And it chronicles this horrible, little-known history of many African Americans who were forced into a form of slavery and certitude all the way in, into the 1950s. And the two main ways it happened outlined in this book, is through sharecropping and forced labor. Sharecropping is when a farmer leases land to a tenant who pays the owner back earnings from the crop. Usually the farmer owns the land, owns the house on it, owns the equipment. It, it, it gives the, 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 the tenant, the sharecropper, a, an advance for the seed, for anything he needs. Uh, and then at the end of the year, t totals everything up, and whatever, whatever profit is, he gives that to the to the sharecropper. The problem is that most sharecroppers were illiterate and the rich owners kept the books. And they could manipulate and finagle the books so that the sharecropper never got out of debt. I'm not saying all the farmers were this way, but there were many. And so they kept that sharecropper in constant slavery to that owner. By the way, if you ever read the book, uh, uh, Same Kind of Different as Me, or saw the movie about the homeless man in Fort Worth, uh, his name was Denver Moore. He was raised in Louisiana, born in 1937, and was a slave on a farm from 1937 to the early 50s. I'm not talking ancient history here. The other way of oppressing the poor was known as forced labor or convict leasing. I know I'm running out of time, but I, I need to tell this. You with me? Some of you are. If you got to leave, you can leave. That's okay. I'm going to finish this. Here's how it worked. This is, this is mind-boggling. A black man would go into a town. A sheriff would arrest him on a trumped-up charge. Vagrancy. Being in town after dark. 
speaking loud in front of a white woman. Whatever the charge was, there would would be a so-called trial, and the prisoner would be found guilty of a crime and given a fine, which he, of course, could not pay. So they said, okay, you can't pay it, so you're going to have to work it off. So he'd have to serve a sentence to pay off his time, and the county would then lease that prisoner to farmers, mines, lumber companies, any business requiring manual labor, and they would lease them out for a profit. And everybody was in on it. The, the, the sheriffs, the judges, everybody was in on it, and they got a cut of it. And these prisoners were held in deplorable conditions and fed just enough to stay alive. And, and I'm not showing you the graphic pictures that I could show you of the way these men were treated. It, it's not something, but you can look it up for yourself. Google it for yourself. Uh, uh, least convicts, uh, forced labor. Uh, but they were held. They were barely kept alive. And then at the end of their sentence, they, they, they came back and they said, okay, your sentence is over. Uh, you're free to go. Oh, but by the way, you've got to pay us back for the room and board that we supplied to you this year. They said, I don't have any money. Oh, well, now you've got to work off that room and board. And they were kept in that form of slavery year after year until they starved to death or were killed. And listen to me, that form of slavery went on in the United States of America until the 1950s. I said the 1950s. I was born in 1955. We talk about the Emancipation Proclamation and all that stuff. The axe was not laid to the root of slavery until 1951 under the presidency of Harry Truman, 17 presidents after Abraham Lincoln. And people seemingly got away with it with no consequences. Seemingly. And often the poor of this world and the oppressed of this world have little satisfaction from the justice system. But James told us, God hears their cries. And he is the one who guarantees to ultimately right every wrong and answer every injustice. What does this mean for us? Well, it means for us we should not oppress others or cheat others, but there are some of us who from our backgrounds, many many of you have come from ethnic backgrounds whose ancestors were enslaved, stolen from, defrauded, even killed for money. Many of your ancestors worked their lifetimes without pay. Many of your recent family members worked a lifetime for less money than they should have received. But God wants you to know that he has heard every single one of those cries and God will set the book straight. God will be the one who ultimately holds the oppressor accountable. He will be the one who gives reparations to the oppressed. James 5, 7, which I'm going to talk about next week, tells about the, that the oppressed need to be patient and wait on the coming of the Lord. And he said, I promise to send you the early and the latter rain. The rain bless, is the blessing of God. The early rain represents the blessing that was stolen from your family. The latter rain represents the blessing God wants to give to you. Everything stolen from your ancestors, it's not lost, it's not gone. It's been stored up for the last days where God is going to send the former and the latter rain. That goes for every ethnic group, every minority that has been stolen from. God sees, God has heard, he's promised to pour it out on you. Everything that 
the enemy has stolen from you and your family. God sees it, and Satan is going to continue to try to block your blessings, but God wants to open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings on you. The devil wants to block your career, but God wants to bless it. The devil wants to destroy your family, but God wants to strengthen it. God, the devil wants to steal your money, but God wants to increase it. The devil wants to steal your health, but God wants to heal you. The devil wants to steal your life, but God wants to give you abundant life. The devil wants to steal your joy, but the joy of the Lord is your strength. The devil wants to keep you enslaved and in a yoke of bondage, but God wants to set you free, and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Every tongue which rises up against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of all the saints. So today, we take authority over the enemy in the name of Jesus. We bind up all the oppression, all the racism, all the, all the sin that's gone on for generations to keep people oppressed. God, we cry out for forgiveness on behalf of our nation and our, and our ancestors. And we pray, God, that you would lose a spirit of reconciliation in Jesus' name. God, we ask you to do it. Lord, we commit that we will love those who hate us. We will bless those who curse us. We will pray for those who mistreat us because Jesus, when we do that, you said our reward will be great and we shall be called sons and daughters of the most high God. Amen. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Ah, I'm glad that sermon is over. That was a hard sermon to preach. But it ministered to me as I studied it out this week, and I pray it said something to you. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come down front. You may have been oppressed at some point in your life. It may still be going on by somebody, someone, a person, company, government, whatever. Maybe you need somebody to pray with you. Maybe it's like, Pastor Joe, I, I can't bless them. I can't believe that anything's going to be any different. We want to pray with you and give you a vision of what God wants to do in your life. Maybe you've hurt people, oppressed people, defrauded people, cheated people, and you need to deal with God about that. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, today's the day of salvation. If you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit, today's a day to get filled. If you need healing, today's a day to get healed. If you need deliverance, today's a day to get set free. Whatever you need, we want to pray with you. See the hand of God move in your life. Let's all stand together. We're going to sing one last song, and we'll be dismissed.